0: for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, October 20th, 2014. Just another Manic Heresy Monday here at Fighting for the Faith. Now just so you know, I will be doing a Hillsong update tomorrow. I had hoped to get it in today, but I'm doing a little bit of research and making sure I got all my ducks in a row. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to stop, slow down, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, when we do this little exercise uh, every weekday here at Fighting for the Faith, uh, what we find is that, well, so many of the most popular most prestigious, greatest number of followers, uh, wealthiest, uh, pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and authors that are put out by the Evangelical Industrial Complex. Over and again, we find that uh, what they're teaching us isn't what God's Word actually says. Instead, they're actually literally selling us the um, theological equivalent of magic beans. Unfortunately, these magic beans are, well, they don't really do anything. That's kind of the point. They take our eyes off of Christ, take our eyes off a sound doctrine and what the Bible actually says, uh, the sound doctrine we're supposed to believe, teach, confess, defend, contend for, that, you know, the faith once delivered to the saints, that uh, these guys are taking our eyes off of all of that and putting it on them and their clever ways of doing things. And so uh, this is a, uh, we try to break it all down for you, apply sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics. So that at the end of the day, you can basically know what God's Word says, have some confidence in being able to apply some discernment skills yourself so that you can protect yourself, your family, your loved ones and friends, and uh, warn them to flee from these false teachers and instead open up their Bibles and actually read it, mark it, inwardly digest it, correctly understand it, and be comforted by the message that it gives to us. And that message is is that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, became a man to save us. That's right, we have a Savior. What are we being saved from? Well, according to Scripture, the thing we're being saved from is the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God. And the only way to be saved from that is to be pardoned to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And so over and again, you'll see that these false teachers, they take our eyes off of that message and (laughs) save you from something else. You know, maybe they save you from a purposeless life here, or they save you from not having your dreams accomplished. And uh, as you're about to hear uh, a little bit later in this first hour, um, uh, Kenneth Copeland, well, he's... uh, It claimed authority over the Ebola virus. So those of you out there, kind of giving a teaser is what we're going to talk about out there. Those of you who are worried about Ebola, well, don't worry anymore. You know, because Kenneth Copeland, he's done taking authority over it. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're, we're as good as saved at this point. But anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start off with the Patricia King update we'll switch to and by the way she's going to be talking about dream boards and the power of dream boards did you know that the bible teaches us to have dream boards (laughs) well i don't know if it does or not i'm all confused after watching this video but apparently there's all kinds of power in dream boards man you know if you don't have a, if you don't have a dream board well you got to go and get yourself one because everybody knows the apostle paul had one and you know peter and james and bartholomew they all had dream boards you know well, she doesn't actually say that, but <laughs> I gotta say that tongue in cheek because the whole point is: is what do dream boards have to do with sound biblical Christian doctrine? Aren't dream boards as mythological and silly as while well, believing that you know that you know in this place called purgatory, or that you can pray to the saints, or that. Uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin and the mediatrix now, and you can, you know, and she was co redemptrix with Jesus. I mean, isn't that the same kind? Of, it's the same thing, you know? You, you get what I'm saying. So, and then when we're done with Patricia King, we're going to listen to another Michael Chitwood update. Michael Chitwood is a televangelist, and if you remember, uh, we covered him a little bit a, a time ago over the summer we played a video of his where well he was asking for bibles why not because he wanted to give them to people to read <laughs> no 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 he wanted to use them as talismans you know to protect his uh, the property of the of the church he's constructing large large building project and so he's he was asking for bibles so they can stick them in the walls of his church and bury them in the cement on the steps and the walkway leading into his church because apparently that's going to just make his church you know Completely demon-proof or something like that. Well, uh, (laughs) let's just put it this way. (laughs) Michael Chitwood may be making more frequent appearances here at Fighting for the Faith. But we're going to be listening to his most recent video as of today, entitled Dream Killers. And uh, we'll... (laughs) just can't make this stuff up. So we'll take a listen to uh, the uh, the Dream Killers thing. And then, you know, somewhere in there we'll take a break and then we'll play the... um, the latest and greatest news coming out of Kenneth Copeland Ministries out there in Texas. And that is is that uh, those of you worried about the, the Ebola virus, oh, fear no more. Kenneth Copeland has declared, taken authority over the Ebola virus. We'll play the video in which he does that, and you can hear it for yourself and sleep a lot easier at night. And then we'll end the hour by uh, taking a listen to uh, two uh, sermon parts side by side. You remember last week? We did the Monsterology sermon review, Pastor Corey with a K out at Church by the Glades. Well, it turns out Pastor Corey straight up plagiarized his sermon, and uh, I received emails from several people over the weekend alerting me to this fact, and so we spent the uh, the morning listening to a couple of Perry Noble's sermons, and lo and behold... You know I was about ready to bang my head against the uh, the desk last week when I was reviewing uh, that monsterology sermon because that was the first time I had ever heard any pastor preach uh, from the story of First Kings chapter eighteen of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you, you know the showdown between elijah and it and turned it into a tithing sermon tithing sermon. And uh, and so I I mean it was just just so hermeneutically and exegetically inexcusable that you know of course I thought you know maybe just Pastor Corey was you know just completely inept as a biblical student well he still may be that uh, but the, as it turns out not only is he biblically inept in in rightly handling God's word. But he is a straight-up plagiarist. So we'll prove that uh, Pastor Corey from Church by the Clades uh, straight-up plagiarized um, the ideas put forward by uh, Perry Noble in his uh, recently concluded money sermon series out there at New Spring Church. And then in hour number two, we're going to head to Narrate Church out there in uh, Helena, Montana, and uh, listen to a sermon about the importance of, you know, of uh, having f- uh, good endings. It's important for you to have proper endings to things. And so I, I had no idea that, you know, the Bible addressed such, you know, important subjects, but it doesn't surprise me in some senses. But so we'll be uh, listening to Adam Houshka uh, wax eloquent pretty much basically about nothing. So uh, that's how we're going to uh, spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly, and I I do mean that, strongly recommend... You make yourself comfortable, but this is one of those uh, programs where our warning is going to come into play. So please, please heed the warning today. Do not listen to this episode, especially hour number one of fighting for the faith, while lis- uh, while lifting heavy, deadly equipment, working out with you know dead weights over at the gym, you know anything that could be life threatening while listening to th- this first hour of Fighting for the Faith because you, you, it, it could shorten your life. You could find yourself in a terribly awful accident or something like that just due to the fact that you might lose control of your ability to control your body while you know listening to the first portion of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So we're going to uh, play our standard warning and we'll get right into it. Here we go. So, I mean, do you know how powerful dream boards are? I mean, if you haven't really considered just how powerful they are, I mean, you're totally missing out. Well, uh, if you've never experienced the power of dream boards, well, good news for you. Patricia King is uh, here to explain to us how we can uh, get involved in dream boarding and, uh, and, know, and understand their, their total power and, and their ability to make our dreams come true. Here's Patricia King.
2: Hi there, and welcome to Mentoring Moments. Um, I have a precious tool for you today called dream boarding, and it came to me as a refreshment at a workshop that we were doing on Kingdom Business a while back.
0: A, a refreshment is that like you know an hors d'oeuvre?
2: One of our speakers, Terry Seacrest, reminded me about the power of dream boards. What is a dream board? You might be saying, "Well, it-
0: yeah, what is it, and what makes it so powerful?"
2: that will help you get the vision or the dream in your heart out in a visual place where you can meditate on it.
0: Mm, get it out in a visual place where you can meditate on it. Now, where do you think the Bible tells us to do that? Listen to the verse she decides really teaches this. And by the way, she gets the address wrong. But listen.
2: In Haggai, chapter 2, verse 2, it says that that we are to inscribe the vision on tablets so that he who reads it may run.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, that's not in the book of Haggai. That's Habakkuk, chapter 2. It's Habakkuk, chapter 2. And Habakkuk is basically complaining to the Lord, when are you going to do something, you know, about what's going on here and all these idolaters and how Israel's completely forsaken you. And God answers... God answers hey, uh, Habakkuk, and it's Habakkuk chapter two, verse two. But we'll we'll add a verse of context here. Where uh, Habakkuk chapter two, verse one: "I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower, look out to see what what he will say, say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint, because Habakkuk has complained to God about you know how the evil are, are doing well, and uh, he seems to be doing nothing about it. So the Lord answered Habakkuk." And here's what he said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Uh huh. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So so the reason why Habakkuk is supposed to write down this vision is, and on a tablet and make it plain is not because Habakkuk, although she said, hey, guy, Habakkuk, it's not because Habakkuk is dream boarding. No, he was supposed to write it on tablets and make it plain. So the person who reads it would flee. If you were to, you can replace the word run here with flee, like skedaddle out of town, because if they read it, they realize, uh-oh, the Lord's sending judgment. That's what's going on in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. And anybody who tells you Habakkuk 2, verse 2, or Haggai 2, 2 in her case, is teaching us that this is is the concept of dream boarding, they've totally taken this verse out of context. They're making it say something it doesn't say. They are using God's word irrationally to make it say something that is preposterous and absurd and is not what God's word says at all, which is Patricia King's normal modus operandi which makes you wonder why is it that she absolutely thinks that God the Holy Spirit is speaking to her when she completely mangles God's word and teaches such nonsense as this.
2: And so to get the vision that God gives you and put it somewhere where you can see it. Why? So that the visual of that will help you run into that vision. <laughs>
3: I mean, the, <laughs>
0: yeah, because, so, yeah, you know, Habakkuk 2.2 2 says, you know, write the vision on tablets, make a plain so that he who reads it r- will run. <laughs> and so, oh man, it's actually flee. That's kind of the idea in the, in you know what's going on in that text. It's unbelievable.
2: It says in Psalm 37, verse 4, that if you delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart.
0: Yeah, it it says if you delight in the Lord. It doesn't say if you um, vision board. You know, see, delight in the Lord, vision board, they might sound like they rhyme, but they're not interchangeable. You know what I'm saying?
2: After this workshop that we did on kingdom uh, business and entrepreneurs, I went home that weekend and I thought, I'm going to have fun with the Lord building a dream board because I haven't built one for a while.
0: So I said, you're going to have fun with the Lord by building a dream board. It's Jesus and Me time, apparently. You know,
2: I went the Lord and I said, "Okay, Lord, I've got so many desires that you have put within my heart, but surface one or two of them right now, and I'm going to dream board with you." And so He gave me um, a dream, a desire that I had been, you know, enjoying over the last you know month or so. I've been pr-
0: please share with a group, Patricia.
2: Into it already. I journaled a little bit about it, but I went on the computer. And I looked up on the Internet all kinds of images that had to do with my dream. And I printed them off in living color and then clipped around them and cut and pasted them. And I built headlines and everything. Before I knew it, I had this dream board and every single little element on it spoke different things to me. Because they were all part of the vision, mm. and then I I did another side to it so I could flip it over and look at two sides, and I had it filled with things that reminded me of my dream, of my desire in the Lord. And I thought, I'm going to delight in you, Lord, because you give me the.
0: I think she would be terrified because if I were to actually sit down and you know start dream boarding, you know it would involve you know the destruction of heretics and their ministries collapsing and them being brought to penitent faith and, and and publicly apologizing to people because of all of the heresy they've been spewing, you know, and, and things like that. I mean, that that's what would be on my dream board. And uh, and so yeah, I don't think she would like that, but it makes me wonder if I should do that, you know, put some kind of dream board together showing Patricia King and T.D. Jakes and Kenneth Copeland and Rick Warren and Driscoll and all on their knees weeping and on television saying, I am a sham and I totally twisted God's word and everything I've said up until this moment is not true. You know, things like that. Please forgive me. I I think, yeah, I'd like to dream board that. I'd like to see how powerful
2: that dream board could be, you know. ...of my heart. Why? Because when I delight in the Lord, he downloads his desires. Now, some people say, well, um you know, I guess I can only have what the Lord desires. And I want to address that because sometimes the Lord gives you what he desires, but he also likes to know what you desire. So for example, when I hear that my grandchildren like something, you know, they give me a list of things that they would like for Christmas, for example, it is my delight to get them what they desire. And I love watching them open the gifts. You know, as long as it's not harmful to them, as long as it's healthy for them, I love giving them their dream. Well, God loves to give you your dreams when they're healthy for you.
0: Mm, it sounds so pious, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So you know, just go out and get yourself a dream board. I mean, they're super powerful for you know for helping get the vision out. Because Haggai, according to her, Haggai chapter two, verse two. Supposedly teaches us to write the vision on tablets and make it plain so that people can run after them. Unbelievable. I cannot believe that anybody thinks that Patricia King is some kind of uh, you know, teacher and preacher of God's word and has anything solid to tell us regarding what God's will and sound doctrine really is. Moving along.
2: I've got... 90,000 pounds in my pajamas Time for a a money-grubbing
0: televangelist update I've got lots of lovely lira
2: Now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer And my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge There is nothing quite as wonderful as money There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly With money you can make a splash There is nothing quite as wonderful as money Money, money, money It's nothing like a newly minted pound Money, money, money Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker It's a accountancy that waits the world go round You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, 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 makes the world
0: go round
2: Money,
3: money, 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 money.
4: That's right.
0: That's uh, Monty Python's money song. Okay, so uh, Michael Chitwood, uh, he has not been a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith. And um, I'm thinking, after watching this video, he be, may be making more appearances. Like I said, if you remember, Michael Chitwood is this guy who was asking for Bibles so that he can bury them in the cement uh, leading up to his church as they were doing construction and then also put them in the walls of his church. You know, apparently this just keeps all the demonic forces away. So here's Michael Chitwood explain to us what a dream killer is and what we're supposed to be doing with them. Here we go.
5: Hey, this is Dr. Michael Chitwood, and I'm coming to you today to talk to you about dream killers. You got any dream killers in your life?
0: I don't know, but Patricia King told me that I need to make a dream board. It's one of the biggest problems, and I'll tell you. Yeah, so it's a big problem. So, you know, see, not only do you need to have a dream board so that you can meditate on whatever the vision is that you got to play, put on your heart, but, you know, dream killers, big problem out there, and I'm so glad that the Bible addresses this. I mean, you'd think the Bible you know, would address, like, bigger problems, like the root of sin and evil and stuff like that, and, you know, and give us some kind of an eternal solution to the problem, but the good news is, is that apparently the Bible's all about Helping us, uh, well, adopt strategies for properly dealing with that bane of society known as the dream killer.
5: This, as my friend, I'm not going to let anybody kill your dream.
0: You- I'm so glad you're not going to let anybody kill my dream.
5: Friends, for a reason. We're connected one on one. And I'm not going to let anybody discourage you or to shoot your dream down. If the people that's around you, are not building you up and supporting you and helping you to go for it and say, get out there and go for it, then they
0: become a dream killer. Uh Uh-oh, if you're not out there supporting people and telling them, oh, go for it for your dreams, you know, while they're dream boarding, well, they become dream killers. Yeah, this is found in uh, Third Hesitations, chapter 55, I think, verse 2? Yeah, I don't know
5: thing that's wrong with so many people their dream is in the grave i'm telling you that you have a dream inside you and you need to dream big yeah don't let anybody put you in a box and make you dream small
0: yeah i don't want to be in those small dream box man no
5: not what you're
0: about no you're
5: too good yeah what's inside of you are big dreams big
0: dreams they're, they're huge man i dream that Guys like you will repent, and your ministries will close down.
5: The book of Ephesians three twenty says this: it says that anything that you can think or ask, that God can do exceedingly above and beyond. What I want to tell you today
0: is yeah, actually, that's not exactly what Ephesians say. That's kind of uh, n- now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we can either ask or yeah, yeah. That's actually kind of a doxological statement made at the end of a prayer. In the midst of uh, the book of Ephesians, it's, it's not that God's promising big dreams. Yeah, I think you've misread that.
5: Big, just dream big. Yeah. Become a dreamer. Yeah, You want to be a big dreamer.
0: Big dreamer. That's what Jesus wants me to be, man. Yeah, I don't know where Jesus said that. But yeah, I mean, you're a minister, so it's got to be what Jesus wants, right?
5: That will change your life totally. Yeah, the people that's in your inner circle, move them out. If they're always talking about you can't do this and you shouldn't do that and and you're – you know how they are. They just always are saying something negative.
4: Yeah, you got to get rid of those people. Get down with the negative dream killers. Kill the dream killers. You have a choice today. Yeah. Do
5: you want positive people in your life Yeah. or do you want negative people in your life?
0: Well, um, okay. Is, Is there like an option three?
5: that you need to contact with me
0: right now and comment and let me know do you want
5: to continue with people that's positive and let me know in fact make a list god just told me make a list
0: god told you to tell me to make a list okay any negative people you have and send it to me well you would be right up there at the top of the list because what you're doing is teaching false doctrine that would make you a negative person
5: move them out of the way I hope that this has inspired you. I hope it's been a blessing to you and helped you to live a great, great life full of dreams. Yeah. I ask you to do me a favor. What? Go down to the bottom of this video and yeah. click share. No. Get it with your friends, no. your timeline, your newsfeed. No. We need to get this out there
0: that you... Yeah, if I put it out there, it'll be in the Museum of Idolatry.
5: Be a dreamer. Remember, you can do anything that you put your mind to. When you want something you've never had, you got to do something. <laughs> you've never done. This is Michael Chitwood. God bless you. And remember that you do have the power to dream and to prosper.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, what's rather fascinating is is that, you know, when you compare the message, you know, that uh, Chitwood here is um, delivering via YouTube with, you know, like the preaching of the Apostle Peter and you know the Apostle Paul and you know, Jesus too. Doesn't sound anything alike. You know, they the you know Peter and Paul they sound like they're they're right on the same page. And then there's Chitwood. He sounds like he's coming from another planet. And yet the thing is, is that Chitwood's message here is that not the same message as Patricia King's message, as Joel Osteen's message, and in some ways the same message as Rick Warrens and so many of the seeker driven, purpose driven guys that uh, we review here at Fighting for the Faith. Yes, is the Chitwood Well, he definitely seems like he's closer to somebody who's like a taco short of a combo plate, so it makes it a little bit easier spot. But then again, he's got a very large growing mega church, so maybe it's not all that easy now, is it? All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Kenneth Copeland update. He's apparently uh, taken authority over the Ebola virus. Don't want to miss that. And then we have a, a Perry Noble update uh, via Corey from uh, CB Glades. Abject plagiarism going on there. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll
4: be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
3: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Captain an enemy vessel off the starboard bow!
4: What colors are they flying? flying
3: the code orange flag it's the ssf
4: audacity this is our chance men this egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough to arms man the battle stations and hoist the colors aye aye sir man the battle stations and hoist
3: the colors Cairo flag. It's the HMS Alicia. Oh, dear. That's bad news. We mustn't let them get the better of us. Call it the praise band drummer and
6: man battle stations. Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on,
3: sir.
4: They're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side, and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status
6: report! Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder, and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never
3: fear, my good man,
6: for it says that... With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furtick.
3: They're now within firing range, Captain.
4: Mr. Smithers,
6: send them a... Nah,
4: nah, hang on, mm, let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow.
3: Fire the cannons, are, sir.
6: That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wished for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed.
3: Nonsense! You think we would surrender in an hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose! Let loose the cannons! But, but we're not within... Silence! If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I say, Fire! I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I
4: can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into their port side while they reload. Aye aye, sir. Fire the cannons!
3: Ha! You call that an attack? I have God on my side! He said this to me, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Why why aren't we firing our cannons?
6: We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack! Come on, men! We can't lose! Aye, aye, sir!
4: Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy. Hello, over there!
3: Go away! We have nothing to say to you!
4: I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender.
3: My surrender? It is you who we be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat
4: stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy.
3: No weapon formed against us will prosper.
4: Why is he quoting the Bible? No, a quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting.
3: Enough talk. Then, ready, aim, <laughs> What was
4: that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But...
3: but, No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us.
6: Oh, would you look at
4: that. Your rudder is gone too. It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think?
3: I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship
4: now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me.
3: The God of Peace will do crush Satan
6: under your feet. the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I'm surrendering. Geronimo! Take me with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now!
3: All of you, come back! We, we, we can't lose! We have... God on our side. We shall prevail.
4: We will. Well, that was surprisingly easy. Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas. Pay more for travel
0: than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars cheapo air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world now whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure cheapo air can help you save money and if you visit our website pirate forward slash cheap we have a promo code that will save you an additional ten dollars off of cheapo air's already low prices So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back.
4: Warning, if your favorite Bible teacher tells you to take authority over things like the Ebola virus by declaring and decreeing and stuff like that, oh man, you're in for a world of hurt. That's not what
0: the Bible teaches. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we're still under the general rubric of money-grubbing televangelists update, and uh, here's one of the premier Apex, Acme, uh, (laughs) televangelists out there on the planet explaining to us how he has taken authority over the Ebola virus. Here's Kenneth Copeland. On the
7: sixth of
0: august twenty fourteen when was that the sixth of august today is October twentieth hmm okay um Bill
7: winston was on his way to africa and and I had come at the invitation of of dr Morris Cerullo and his his london campaign is big wonderful meeting and i had been invited to speak there brother bill had been invited to speak there <clears throat> and and the lord set this up i heard it that morning uh he he was speaking first and i was speaking right behind him and I I heard it that morning. The word of the Lord came to me, and He said, "I've set you two together today, and you take authority over that Ebola virus and the demon that's that's feeding life into it. You take authority over
0: it, and you put a stop to it." Mm, and that was all the way back in August. <laughs> Whoo! Yeah, you clearly have licked it. I mean, yeah, we haven't heard anything about the Ebola virus spreading. At all. I mean, since August, right? Wrong.
7: And so we came together yeah. on Psalm 91
0: 3. Oh, Psalm 91 3. You came together. Now, um, surely he shall
7: deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Now,
0: Mm-hmm. Psalm 91.3. Hmm. Let's apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, and uh, let's just put it into context. Because the three rules are context, context, and context. Here's a psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler." No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Ah, Psalm 91 is a messianic prophecy. And you go, well, how do you know that? Well, the devil knew it was messianic because when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, don't you remember the devil misquoted Psalm ninety-one and knew, and basically knew that this was a messianic prophecy, and asked Jesus to basically um, throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, "For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways." You see, this is not some general prophecy promising that Christians will never suffer disease or plague or when a when a plague comes through the earth that christians will not ever you know be exposed to it and never die That's not what this psalm is saying at all. This is a messianic prophecy. In order to understand it, you have to understand how it relates back to Jesus. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. All right, so there's the psalm and uh but I'm so glad that uh <laughs> Kenneth Copeland and this other guy have, you know, Mr. Winston have agreed on Psalm 91 verse 3 and they've actually misquoted it much the same way. The devil misquotes Psalm 91 in Matthew chapter 4 when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. There's some pestilence
7: is deadly, virulent disease. It comes from a virus, and it is deadly disease. Now, we did that day what we were instructed to do, and we... Yeah,
0: you say that you were instructed by God to do this, right?
7: something like 4,000 people there gathering together with us in agreement. Now then, partners, we stand together in this. This thing is not
0: coming to us. It's not coming to you and me. We- mm, this thing, the Ebola virus is not coming to us. By the way, this was published on Kenneth Copeland's youtube channel on october 2nd 2014 friends this this is not coming to us now where does kenneth copeland live texas where's the uh, first major you know the first case of somebody dying of the ebola virus in the united states where was that again i seem to think it was in the state of yeah you know texas hmm
7: delivered from this thing in the name of Jesus. Listen to this. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He'll cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall trust. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You will not be afraid.
0: I will not be afraid. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 28... Mm, yeah, Deuteronomy 28. Yeah, that we're dealing with the tail end of the uh, reading of the Mosaic Covenant along with the uh, curses clauses if you don't keep the Mosaic Covenant. Notice this.
7: In the 61st verse, every sickness and every plague, this is a plague which is not written in this book of the law, will come on you. That is under the curse Of the law.
4: Well, yeah, it's
0: not that those plagues only. See, that's the thing is, is that God didn't say, listen, this only applies to the curse of the law. Plagues will only come on people due to the curse of the Mosaic covenant. That's not what he says in that passage. Galatians chapter three. Yes.
7: You know it well, but I want you to put your eyes on it right now. Christ, in the 13th verse, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So Jesus has redeemed us from every
0: sickness, every plague. Yeah, no, actually, that is a non sequitur. Um, see, See, here's the thing. Deuteronomy doesn't say that the only way somebody suffers from a plague is if they break the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, Jesus, by becoming a curse for us, has set us free from the curse of the law. Therefore, that means nobody in Christ is therefore going to suffer uh, from uh, pestilence or plagues or things like that. See, it's, it's a non sequitur because the Mosaic Covenant doesn't say that the only way in which people, you know, have a plague befall them is due to breaking the Mosaic Covenant. See, If you just pay attention to the details, you realize Kenneth Copeland is a major, major, major Bible twister. Every
7: disease and by his stripes we're healed, not only by his stripes are we healed, but by his blood we are protected and we stand, praise God, yes, and we overcome the devil and all of his sickness, all of his disease by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Yes,
0: oh yeah,
5: yeah. you just say it like that, it's just got to be true,
0: right? Yeah, you are a complete utter wingnut. Yeah, listen, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Get inside of, you know, one of those private jets that you own and fly yourself down to Liberia. You know, and put yourself right in the middle of, you know, Ebola plague central and start laying hands and declaring and decreeing over the people who are actually dying of this disease and let's see how you fare. Again, when did God tell him to decree and declare authority over the Ebola virus? Back in August, when was this video published? Oh, October 2nd. And he said, it's not coming here. It's not coming to us. And where did the Ebola virus really kind of first break out in the United States? In the state of Texas, where Kenneth Copeland lives. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone out there really believe that Kenneth Copeland has the authority over uh, the Ebola virus? That that this is really what God's word says? I mean, he's a lot of fuss and feathers, you know, a lot of talk. I ain't seeing no results. I mean, you know, how many tornadoes are killing people every year out there in the, in the, you know, in Texas? And, you know, he hasn't really actually stopped a one of them. I mean, you'd think this guy, I mean, if he really had this power and authority from God to do these things, you know, he would do the humanitarian thing. And, Take you know, pack up his jet and get out there and just eradicate this Ebola virus all in the name of Jesus. But, you see, he's just a showman. That's what he is. He makes a lot of money putting on a show, a religious show, where he twists God's word, tells people what they want to hear, and makes people think that he is the anointed one, that he's a little God, that he's so important, that he's so powerful. And yet, he's a sinner just like me, just like you. Except for he's made a lot of money telling lies about Jesus. And now he's putting on a show, claiming authority over Ebola. But if he really had that authority, he'd be there in Africa, putting a stop to it. He doesn't have any authority over it. This is just a show because everybody's looking to him to do something. And I seem to remember that it was uh, his church where there was a big measles outbreak because, you know, the people there weren't getting immunized because they had authority over these sicknesses and diseases. Weird, huh? Moving along.
8: Oh, it really does Yeah,
4: time for a Perry Noble update. I do, as long
8: as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with With a dash dash of hocus-pocus and the scent
4: of burning burning sulfur in in the air. air? I'm a fraud, a poke, a charlatan, a joke But they love me everywhere
8: For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do As long as I do it with a flair And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say
4: As long as I say it with a flair First, I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans
8: and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me Everywhere. everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I
0: said it when I tell it with a a C. All right, that's our uh, Perry Noble update, and uh, we are going to, well, blow the whistle on young Pastor Corey from C.B. Glades. Now, if you listen to the sermon review that I did on Monsterology, the money moth monster, uh, preached by Pastor Corey of Church by the Glades, then you know that by the end of that thing, I was... Is in serious danger of experiencing spontaneous human combustion. That one really upset me. The reason it upset me is because Pastor Corey took the story of the the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and turned it into a tithing sermon. No joke. If you're thinking, how on earth is that possible? Well, at the time, I was I was just really frustrated and consternated due to the fact that somebody would dare to twist God's word in that way, and and just thought, man, you know, this Pastor Corey is just a miserable exegete. Well, <laughs> turns out he's he's that, um, but see, he didn't really do any exegesis. Nope, Pastor Corey totally plagiarized, and I mean this in the truest sense of the word plagiarized his sermon from two different Perry Noble sermons. He kind of mashed them together, you know, for his one sermon. But, I mean, he even told the exact same jokes as Perry Noble. I mean, this should tell you just how shallow and evil. And I mean that. I mean, somebody who would steal another sermon, and and it's, it's like, you know what this is like. I mean... This would be like, uh, okay, f- let me. I'm trying to come up with a metaphor here. Okay, when you were in high school or in college, there were people who were were really good at cheating. I mean, if from not, from time to time, the schools that I would attend, people would get busted for cheating, and uh, this would be like somebody cheating by trying to copy the test answers f- <laughs> from not an A student, but the D student, the, the guy who's got who's getting like a D minus. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so, so I mean, could you imagine that's like, you know, uh, well, you, the, the, how that conversation would go? You know, a student cheating by, you know, looking at the answers of somebody who actually doesn't know what they're doing. And so at the end of the day, the teacher has to basically bust him and say, um, not only did, did you get an F along with the person that you were copying from – but I have to bust you for plagiarism because you copied his answers, which were wrong in the first place. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, it's kind of like that. So to kind of prove the point, we're going to be listening to portions of Corey's sermon and Perry Noble's sermons, and then so you can kind of hear what's going on. So this is plagiarism of false doctrine. Um, uh, the false doctrine has its genesis in uh, in Perry Noble, the, uh, the person silly and foolish enough to plagiarize it, Corey, from Church by the Glade. So here's Corey. We'll start off with the joke portion of it. You can see how this uh, plays out. Here we go.
9: For those of you that it's your birthday in October, hypothetically, let's say I'm going to get you a gift, okay? I'm going to get you a gift. You're like, all right, I like this. We turn the tables. It's not about giving money. He's going to give me something. Yeah, I'm going to get you three gifts. That's how much I love you, hypothetically, though. First gift. Everybody say first. First gift, I'm going to get you a sports car. Yeah, ooh, Okay. Yes, ma'am. Pray for, yeah. I know what she's praying for. I'm gonna get you a sports car. We'll say you're thinking, you know, it's a Lamborghini. Maybe it's like a Shelby GT500. Well, you get me. Come on, Corey. Come on, Corey. What are we getting? It's even better. Here we go, guys. I'm gonna get you, for your birthday, I'm gonna get you a 1984 Pontiac Fiero.
0: All right. So, and just a couple of weeks prior to Pastor Corey preaching that sermon, Here's Perry Noble from New Spring in Anderson, uh, South Carolina. Listen to this.
8: People, um, you've got a birthday coming up in the next month, and I've been put in charge of getting you a birthday present. And I was given an unlimited budget by your friends and family members in order to acquire a birthday present and so I got you and we're in the room and I want to share with you I've bought you three birthday presents that I think you're going to absolutely love and you're just really excited and I'm really excited and I said the first birthday present I got you is a is an is a sports car and it's awesome you're going to love this sports car it's state of the art it's innovative it's the best thing on four wheels and you're thinking in your mind oh my gosh is it a 1967 shelby mustang is it a is it a camaro is it a lamborghini i'm like no 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 no, it's better i bought you a 1984 pontiac Fiero."
0: ah weird huh same joke even the setup with the birthday
9: is the same here's uh pastor Corey again look at that car (laughs) my man up here said i'll take it yeah here's the deal (laughs) 1984. This was the hottest car in 1984. Some of you remember when this car came out. This car was so hot, it was on fire. But that's the problem. This car would actually set itself on fire. Yeah, the
0: weird thing is, Pastor Corey, I don't think he was uh, old enough to remember Pontiac Fieros. I am, but here's uh, this is weird. Here's uh, Perry Noble talking about that Pontiac Fierro again.
8: Not a Ferrari, a Fierro. Now, some of you weren't alive in 1984. You're going to have to take my word for it. When this car came out, it was the hottest car on the road. I mean, it was on fire, but then something Happened. They literally started catching on fire. And when I say catching on fire, I'm not meaning they got real popular. I mean they literally started, like you would park at a restaurant, go in, and come back outside, and your car would be burned to the ground.
9: Mm-hmm. All right, now here's Pastor Corey again, next joke. It would just self-combust. Like you would go to a restaurant, and then you'd come out, and your tires would be all that's left because it just combusts. So you're like, thanks, Corey, but no thanks, strike one. That gift wasn't the greatest. Okay, number two, second gift. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. For your birthday, I know strike one in on the first one. For your but this next one's going to be great. I invested my money for you in one of the best internet companies that has ever been. I, I, I got stock for you in one of the all-time greatest internet companies. Some of you are thinking, all right, okay, all right, go make me rich. Amazon, Google, what are we talking about? No, 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 even better. I got you stock in MySpace. All right, so that's
0: joke number two. Here is uh, Perry Noble just a couple of weeks prior to Pastor uh, Corey preaching this sermon.
8: My second gift to you is I've bought you stock in an Internet-based web company. And this Internet-based web company is creative and innovative and this stock—I mean, I've spent a lot of money on it—and it's going to turn into millions, if not billions, for you. And you're excited. You're like, "Oh my gosh!" Would you buy? Did you buy Google? No, no, it's better. Did you buy Facebook? No, 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 it's better. I bought you stock in a company called MySpace.
9: Hmm. Okay, let's go back to Pastor Corey. MySpace. How many of you used to have a MySpace? Anybody? Yeah. How many of you still use MySpace? At the end of the service, we're going to have pastors and prayer partners up here. If that's you, you can come forward. We'll introduce you to you. Why? Because like some of you are not too excited about that. Because in its day, MySpace was awesome. But if you're on it now, it's kind of sad. It's not so awesome. So strike two. You're like, Corey, you're striking out on me. Hey, you got one more try. Okay, one more try. This last gift, you're going to love it. For your birthday, this last gift. I didn't just give you. I got you and three of your friends tickets to one of the all-time Best concerts ever. Like this this artist is one of the best performers that have ever graced this planet, one of the best selling albums that has ever existed. This dude won entertainer of the year. I mean, I I didn't just get you four tickets. I'm getting you four backstage passes to see this. I know some of you are thinking, oh man, it's just like Bono and you too. Maybe it's Garth Brooks or you know, maybe it's Jay-Z. I don't know. No, it's even better. I got you four tickets and backstage passes to go see. Vanilla ice to the extreme. All right, let's go back to Anderson, South Carolina, just a few weeks
0: prior to this sermon preached by Pastor Corey at Church by the Glades and uh, hear Perry Noble. What's joke number three from him?
8: Last but not least, I bought you four concert tickets. That's right. You, four of your friends, are going to go and see one of the greatest entertainers Of all time. You're going to be on the front row. And afterwards, I've got you some backstage passes. So you can meet this person or this group. And you're automatically thinking, oh my gosh, greatest ever. It's got to be you too. Or it's got to be Garth Brooks. Or it's got to be Jay-Z. I said, no, 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 no. It's even better. I bought you tickets to see Vanilla Ice to the extreme.
0: Same exact jokes. That's what we call plagiarism. That is stealing. And the sad thing is, is that well, Pastor Corey, he chose to steal. Um, the, even the theology from this sermon from Perry Noble. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fast forward a little bit, and uh, you'll ha- if you haven't heard the sermon review, you go back to last week and listen to the sermon review if you want to hear the whole sermon. And I'm going to point, I'm going to play uh, Perry Noble discussing the theology that he seems to think that he sees in this text. It's, it's all about tithing. And uh, the the question kind of hinges on where did Elijah get the water from to pour on the uh, the sacrifice uh, during the showdown? Now the, here's the thing. the text doesn't say if this was an important part of the story, where the water came from, the text would actually explain to us that the water came from this particular place. And that this is what its meaning is. Since the text doesn't say, it's kind of an insignificant portion of the story. So what Perry Noble is doing is he's trying to answer the question, where does the water come from? And he's, he rules out that it could have come from the Mediterranean. I agree with him. He rules out that it couldn't have come from the brook that's at the bottom of Mount Carmel. And his argument is, is that there would have been a three-year-long drought. Now, I would basically say, well, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it completely dried up. I mean... You know, sometimes Brooks have their uh, sources of origin in other places, okay, and, you know, and they run long distances. Regardless, even if it was completely dried up and the water actually came from the people who came, you know, who came to watch the showdown, it still doesn't justify what he's doing with this text because he's taking a, a detail that isn't given in the text and giving it the ultimate say as to what this text is about. The story is not about tithing. Yet, this is what Perry Noble does, and Corey from Church by the Glades, if you get, again go back and listen to last week's sermon review, lifts this false teaching, this eisegesis, sticking something into the text that isn't there, he takes this eisegesis from Perry Noble and he passes it along to the people at Church by the Glades when he was plagiarizing Perry Noble's sermon. So here's Perry Noble from just a couple of weeks prior to Pastor Corey preaching, telling us that Well, here's what it means. The water could only come from the people who were there. Therefore, it has to do with surrendering everything you have and making Jesus first in your finances, which is not what this text is about. Here's Perry Noble.
8: There wasn't a well. There wasn't a river. They couldn't have gone to the Mediterranean Sea. But everybody on that mountain would have had to hike or come or travel at least a day, minimum a day, max a week to get there. All of them would have had water with them. And so when Elijah was challenging these people, the reason he did it three times is he had to call for commitment three times because most people don't commit the first time.
0: Yeah, actually, he wasn't calling for commitment. You're sticking that in the text. There is no call for commitment in the text.
8: The first time he said, hey. Basically, you guys have tried bail. You've tried the system of the world. The system of the world does not work. So why don't you surrender to God? And there was one group that came forward, and there were two groups that stood back.
0: Yeah, it's weird because the text doesn't say that.
8: And after that first group, he said, you know what? I'm unapologetically telling you, Some of you are holding out on God and you need to come forward and you need to pour out your offering right now. And then a few more people moved. But then there's always that one group. I call them the hell no, we won't go group. They're in every church. Right? That's their attitude. And one more time, unapologetically, he got up in front of them and he said, you need to get this right.
0: He he unapologetically said to the third group, you need to get this right. Where in the text does it say that Elijah said to the third group, you need to get this right? It's not in there.
8: You have not followed God in this area of your life.
0: In this area, like tithing, apparently tithing water now.
8: And it's left you dry, and it's left you desperate. You need to surrender. And the third group came forward and poured out their water on the rock. So here, what is the significance of that? It's very simple.
0: Well, there is no significance of it because it's actually not in the text.
8: Everybody's life would be better if Jesus were at the center. And Just like they held water as their source of life in the Middle East 2,500 years ago, in America today, we hold money as our source of life. And money is the one area that most people will not surrender. And as your pastor, I will unapologetically tell you that until you surrender your finances to Jesus, your finances are not surrendered to Jesus. And until you do it, you're not surrendered. You know what? We can have all kinds of conversation, and all kinds of dialogue, and you could argue and disagree. At the end of the day, what's the motive of your heart when it comes to your money?
0: Yeah, my question is, what's the motive of your heart to lie about God's Word and put something in the text that isn't there in order to guilt trip people to give money to New Spring? Could it possibly be that uh, NewSpring is this extremely expensive quote-unquote church uh, to run? with the most expensive possible model to do, church, and you have to constantly guilt trip people to give money in order for you to keep the doors open? Is that what it possibly is? Man. So, I mean, that. there you go. That's what happens. So uh, Pastor Corey straight up plagiarized this, these jokes and this false theology in Issa Jesus, sticking something into the text regarding the story of Mount Elijah uh, not Mount Elijah, Mount Carmel, and Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and uh, and so the, again, this is the equivalent of you know a high schooler cheating off of somebody during a test, but the person he cheated off of is a D student. Wow, absolutely breathtakingly awful. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You could do so. My email address is talkback at or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're heading to Helena, Montana to narrate church, to uh, hear an Adam Hushka sermon. Pretty much about nothing that the Bible teaches. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be
10: right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
6: No! Seriously!
0: to a Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. What is happening to Christ's church? How has this rebellion against what God's word says gained so much strength and steam in the visible church among those who call themselves Christians and those who follow Christ? It doesn't make any sense at all. The get the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Narrate Church. Helena, Montana, Adam Hushka presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled Necessary Endings. Let me read to you the, um, the description of this sermon. What if the tomorrow you desire can can never come to pass? If you don't end some things today, what if we could learn to treat endings as normal? What is that? I mean, I have no idea which doctrine we're going to be learning, but it doesn't sound like, well, Christian doctrine. So I'm just sitting here on pins and needles waiting to hear what it is that Adam Huska is going to be talking about. But... So far, all of the sermons we've reviewed from Adam Hushka have been less than biblical. Less than. Yeah, and it's just weird. This is such a fast-growing, quote-unquote, church. How can that be? Let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here's Adam Hushka and necessary endings. Here we go.
10: Morning, we're really, really excited to start this brand new series that we've been working on for quite a while, actually. And this morning, there's this one idea that I'd like to explore with you, and it's simply this. What if the tomorrow you desire can never come to pass if you don't end some things today?
0: Where does the Bible teach this doctrine?
10: And it's simply this. What if the tomorrow you desire can never come to pass uh, if you don't end some things today? It's kind of the thesis of this entire conversation, but most especially this morning and the next week we'll break into relationships and vocation and some other things. Uh, but, but this morning, I just want to get you thinking about and hopefully send you into your homes and offices and wherever it is you have conversations and however it is you process life, just thinking about this. What if those things that you desire, those, those futures that you want to have happen, what, what if in order for those to happen, you're first going to have to end some things today? Kind of heavy, but i don't think it's as heavy as maybe it seems once we get through some of this uh, several years ago i 've talked a lot about the fact that I had this really incredible privilege of going to grad school with my friend Brian Hopkins, who leads journey in bozeman and and that was an online deal, but for nine, ten days a semester we we had to go to Portland and hang out like for ten days straight without kids or anything like that. so it was it was a tough job, but somebody has to do it and so on one of those trips, as we were hanging out, there were four of us that would spend our out of class time together. Uh, Just kind of out of nowhere, Brian informed us that that the 50th anniversary of our association of churches was occurring in a suburb of Portland that very night. And he thought, what do you think? Should we go? Which was a trap question, of course. And so uh, we all went and we walked into this banquet hall that somewhere around 1956 was an incredible facility. Uh, It was one of those that the entire thing was uh, pine paneling. I don't know what era of architects and designers thought that was cool, but by this point, it was that orange pine color that you see. And so we walked into this banquet hall. I suppose there are 150 people or so around your classic banquet tables you know, with tablecloths down to the floor. And we got served the normal banquet attire or food, uh, cordon bleu, chicken cordon bleu, right? Like right out of the microwave from the Schwanz man, uh, frozen vegetables and instant mashed potatoes followed by Sara Lee cheesecake (laughs) or something like that. And I don't know about you, but have you perfected the art of eating banquet meals? I can cut my chicken cordon bleu into enough places without putting any of it on the floor to make it look like I enjoyed at least half of it. Can can you do that? You should try it. It's it's quite the skill. It saves you lots of pain. So we did our thing, and we had our meal. And then at one point, uh, this this guy went to the front of the room and said, hey, so now we're going to do our special music. And I thought, this will be interesting. Plus, there's no stage anywhere, like no stage, no sound system, no lights, no, no anything. And then I thought, okay, stop being so pretentious. Uh, you can sing without a stage and a sound system and all that. And so sure enough, about that time, this a very well-intentioned, I, I suppose, 70-something gal came walking through the middle of the banquet hall, and I kid you not, carrying a boombox, like 5D cell battery, like Mr. T, put it on your shoulder, boombox. And she walked up to the front of this room and she placed it, there was like a little one-foot-high carpeted riser, and she placed the boombox on the riser, and then she hit play on the cassette tape. I mean, I, you know, this was like, I don't know, 2008? Play on the cassette tape, and there was instrumental music that began to play. Now, some of you were churched, and you would have recognized it. I didn't recognize it. I had to wait until she started singing, because see, the idea was is it was she was going to sing over top of this boombox, and I finally leaned over to one of my friends who we were with, because I wasn't raised in the church, and he was, and I was like, so who is this? What? What is this? And he said, it's Sandy Patty. Now, I don't know if you guys know Sandy Patty. Apparently, she was a big deal in the Christian world in 1962. And so she sang this song. And, and okay, so I know I sound like a giant jerk right now. And so we're sitting there, and we're trying to take all this in. I'm trying to take it in without being that guy, right? Like, sometimes it's unavoidable, but I'm trying not to be that guy. And then you know, she hit a high note or was supposed to hit a high note, and, and I couldn't make this up. As she was supposed to hit the high note, as she attempted to hit the high note, underneath the table next to us was a dog. I didn't know that. Nobody knew that. But as she hit the high note, this large black dog came barreling out from underneath the table and looked at her with this look in his eyes and this whimper in his voice. It, I, I couldn't even mimic the sound, but he, he just came out of nowhere and was staring at her making this whimpering sound. So, so now now we're trying to keep it together because there's this dog who now is deeply disturbed by the music. And, and our, our superintendent was there, and we're very much like, you guys aren't going to be those guys, right? And so the, the gal, it was a service dog, I later learned. And sh- so she kind of pushed him back under the table, and he retreated back underneath the table. But then, you know, I mean, second verse, same as the first. And so looped back around to it, hit the high note again. Here comes the dog barreling out from underneath the table. This whiny, like, please, God, get me out of this mess kind of look on his face. I'll, I'll never forget, I texted my, my boss at the time, Vern, because he knew I was there. I texted him, uh, if I described to you in perfect detail what was happening right now, you would call me a liar. So we're going to talk about endings. And, and I think one of the places where we have to begin is there's a tricky thing about endings, and that is endings are really, really, really easy to spot and identify and even embrace when they're not your endings. Uh, This is the type of conversation, like a lot of them we have around here, really easy to see it in others,
0: really Really easy to embrace endings when they're not your
10: endings? What? What does this have to do with anything? We continue. And my, my goal here is not to make any of us judgmental snobs where we become experts at informing our friends and coworkers and family members and spouse and kids where their endings need to occur. The design is to get us thinking about our own endings.
0: Yeah, whatever you don't, don't inform, you know, people that you love where their endings should occur.
10: (laughs) What does that even mean? But we have to be careful because when it's not your relationship, when it's not your boyfriend, when it's not your girlfriend, when it's not your business, when it's not your leadership, when it's not your team, when it's not your addiction or your bad habit, when it's not your deal, it's really, really easy to see the need for it. But when it's yours, it's tough. And th- yeah, yeah when, when you know it's your ending, it's tough. And I think part of what we have to just acknowledge is that part of what makes endings so darn difficult is they hurt. They hurt bad. In fact, if you were to scan back in your life and just identify the most painful moments you've ever experienced, the, those, the darkest days, I'll bet you what you're going to find is that the vast majority of those horrendous moments were when something ended. And you had no choice but to embrace that, or you had the courage to end something and every part of you wanted to like put it back together, but you knew you were doing the right thing. And so we can't simplify this and we don't want to get simplistic. Endings are hard.
0: Yeah. They're, they're so like difficult, man. I, I don't even know what he's talking about. I mean, is he talking about death? Is he talking about switching careers? What is this about?
10: It was a part of a conference uh, about 10 years ago. It was, uh, at Faith Chapel, actually, Stan Simmons, who was here last week, he invited me to it, and it was a it was a conference designed to help people understand how God's equipping in their past was contributing to their calling in the future. Something we're going to talk a lot more about two weeks from today. And 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 it, the way they did this was with post it notes. And so they actually, they, we were sitting down at these tables, and the first thing they you know, they gave this message, and then. They gave us 20 minutes, and they left us all with a pile of those kind of miniature Post-it notes. And they said, here's what we want you to do is we want you to identify all the major moments in your life that kind of have shaped who you are. So the idea was is that we would identify those 20 or 30 or 40 times. And it was bullet points. It wasn't paragraphs. You know, it was like parents divorce or met this person or moved to this town or someone died. But the idea was is that for every one of those that you could think of, uh, you just write it on a Post-it note and slap it down and keep going. So we did that and I think the majority of the room had 20, 30, maybe 40 of them. And of course part of the design of it was to kind of help us figure out which ones really were the main things and to pare that down a little bit and we put them in chronological order. And then we took a break and we came back and when we came back there were these blue post-it notes on the tables. And the guy said, "Okay, here's the, here's the next step. Is I want you to look at look at your 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 timeline. We'd put it on poster board. Look at your timeline. And I want you to identify which of those events on the timeline, when they occurred, were painful. Like when they happened, if you could have undone them, you, you, you would have done that. Like if you, if you could have avoided it, you would have avoided it. Like which ones hurt? And he said, once you've identified those, what I want you to do is just kind of exchange the yellow one for a blue one. And so you're taking the yellow one that says, you know, dad died, and you're writing it on a blue one and putting where that yellow one was. And, of course, many of you are one step ahead of me already because when you'd finished this part of the project, how many of those post-it notes do you suppose were blue? A lot of them. And so there's this, there's this conversation we have to have, and I think in order, because I, I really think, you guys, that, that this is one of, this, can un, this can open things up for us. But to do that, the first thing we have to do is understand that, yes, endings hurt, but they're not all bad. Now, they're not all good either, and we'll talk about that, But but they're not all bad. In fact, one of the questions I think that is worth asking is what if, what if the ability to end something well, gracefully, what if the ability to, to move on, what if the ability to, to, to just say there's a necessary ending that has to happen, what if that's a life skill? And when we start. What
0: if this isn't even biblical? What if this is not something that uh, a pastor is supposed to be teaching people? What if he's supposed to be teaching them God's word, you know, opening up a biblical passage and, you know,
10: exegeting a text? What if? Start asking questions like, what are the attributes of people who live well and lead well and stay creative and stay connected relationally? And what if one of the attributes we'd uncover is that people who live well, they have the ability to implement necessary endings?
0: See, one of the- Do you have the ability to implement necessary endings? I mean, if not, you may not be Christ-like enough because one of the ways in which you can be Christ-like is learn how to implement necessary endings. What does any of this mean or have anything to do with biblical Christianity?
10: One of the things about necessary endings is is that they they can accomplish a few different things. It's not altogether uh, different than that involved with pruning, say a tree or a rose bush or something. See, there's a few things that can happen. First of all, necessary endings, they eliminate disease.
0: Necessary endings eliminate disease. I don't know where he's getting it.
10: Just like a tree or a plant— Life can develop a habit, a disease, sometimes that's a relationship, sometimes that's a particular habit, it can come in lots of forms. But when we understand the value of that, we're that much more likely to understand like, hey, there's a disease here and it needs to end. Jesus in, in John chapter 15 uh, I'm not going to play the tambourine, in case you're wondering, but I do need my Bible. Uh, I do have a tambourine story, though, and I will not share it. In, in...
0: Okay, so John chapter 15 supposedly has something to do with what it is he's talking about, the, the ability to uh, create necessary endings.
10: In, in John chapter 15, some of you will be familiar with this, but I think it bears just jumping to it. Jesus says this, I'm the true vine. My father's the gardener. Now you hear gardener and you think, oh, that's like warm and fuzzy. But to be a gardener means way more than warm and fuzzy. The next thing he says is he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit.
0: Yeah, this sermon isn't bearing any fruit. That's, at least it's biblical.
10: To everybody who understands gardening, everybody who understands leadership, uh, understands that, that part of the role of a gardener is, is to actually get rid of things. Some of you, I hope that in the process of this conversation, you're going to identify some disease and begin to deal with it. The other thing that uh, pruning does and necessary endings accomplishes is it sharpens focus. And that's something, again, we're going to talk a whole lot about as we talk about pruning towards something in, in two weeks from today. But, but in the process of pruning a tree, with, with rare exception, most tree species, they thrive when there's what is called a single central leader within that tree so say your classic mountain ash, that they don't need to have five trunks. In fact, that's not best for them if there's five trunks. There needs to be one trunk. And part of the process of pruning is kind of arbitrarily to pick which single central leader are we going to prune everything else around? How are we going to prune toward it? Sometimes this isn't a negative thing. Sometimes it's not an addiction. Sometimes it's not a relationship that needs to end. Sometimes what, what happens in the process of talking about necessary endings is you begin to realize, wait a minute, I've got too much going on. Like, there's life produces too much life, and therefore we've got to get rid of some of the buds if we're going to actually have big, vibrant life. And the third thing that necessary endings accomplish is they create space for new growth. So Jesus starts by talking about cutting off every branch, and then he says, well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it'll be even more fruitful. Dr. Cloud, who I'm indebted to for this series, he actually wrote a book called Necessary Endings, uh, I'm going to give it to you in 30 minutes this morning. Dr. Cloud. I
0: have no idea who he is, but I'm pretty sure he's not a biblical author.
10: But, but he said this in his book. He said both businesses and individuals will begin, gather, and have more activities than can be reasonably sustained. So see, this isn't all negative. This is sometimes, by the, pro- and the by, as a result of being successful and creative and fruitful, sometimes good things just have to go. So what if... What if that future you desire, what if it really does require this ability to bring about endings? What if they're not all bad? And here's the here's what as a Christ follower I love about this conversation. Is that, that the point at which you decide that endings are a good idea and there's some logical, emotional even sense to it, the great news is 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 God the Father is the expert. Like the God of the Bible is the expert. Like you don't have to go any further. You certainly can, but you don't have to. In fact, I think that if you were beginning to understand so God's the expert at
0: necessary endings. Yeah, I, again, I have no idea where any of this is coming from.
10: To understand what can make God seem so unapproachable and, dare I say, scary at times, it's that God is a God who navigates us through endings on our way to beginnings. We love to talk about new beginnings. We love to talk about new opportunities and new creation. But what's not quite as comfortable is to acknowledge that sometimes to get there, there's an ending that happens first. And I think for some of us, maybe those of us who have been around here for a long time or been around church even longer, what can make God seem far too approachable? And let's be honest, as much as it's uh, not a good thing when someone finds God to be too scary and too unapproachable, it's just as unhealthy when we find him to be our homeboy and our co-pilot and our buddy. Because I think sometimes... Well,
0: I agree with you there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not right.
10: And this is where I've been challenged, is we can lose sight of the fact that God is a God who who coaches and corrects and disciplines and says, hey, it's not all just good job, good job, good job. I love you, I love you, I love you. Sometimes he's going to lead us through what is an otherwise painful process of, of pruning. And so like think of, one of the ways to think about this is just begin to scan in your head the, the stories, the narratives of the text and the ones that that drive you and that shape your thinking about God. And what you'll see is over and over and over again, there are these endings. Like think of Abram. A person from whom the whole story re- really derives from. It's to to Abram, who we know as Abraham, God said, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. See, there's an ending, what we would today call family of origin. There's an ending. And in order for a beginning to happen, there has to be an ending that happens first. Think of Mo-
0: Weird analysis of that story from the Bible. It really has nothing to do with the, what that story is about.
10: Moses. God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to lead my people. I want you to lead these slaves into freedom. But first you'll have to stop being a shepherd. And 40 years before that you'll have to stop being so proud and thinking this is about you. You think of uh, David, who, who got David so desperately wanted to build God a temple, and yet God said, I don't want you to build me a temple, but I thought you wanted a temple. I do want a temple, I just don't want you to build the temple. There, there's an ending. Mary, the mother of Jesus, that entire beginning was made possible by her saying goodbye to some things, namely her peers' respect, her, her traditional Jewish life. The disciples had to say goodbye to fishing and not just...
0: Where does it say that Mary abandoned her traditional Jewish life?
10: Fishing, but all the associations that came with it. Matthew had to say goodbye to tax collecting. Over and over and over again, what you see is God, he's, he's an endings
1: expert.
0: That's- mm, yeah, God, the endings expert. I hope this, uh, this uh, sermon has an expert ending because it's already driving me crazy because it's really about nothing. We continue.
10: That's the way he leads all the time. And I think sometimes when we hear the words associated with endings, words like repentance, what we think of is is some angry religious zealot on some street corner with a megaphone shouting what amount to uh, religious obscenities at unsuspecting people. And therefore our association with things like repent, it's entirely negative. And yet when we do that, we miss the heart of Jesus within that. In Matthew 4.17, Where this idea of repentance really is uh, derived, listen to the way Jesus says it. After his first sermon, he says, repent. See, now we all hear negative, beat you up. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, there's a both and. Repent, yes, it involves ending. It also involves beginning. And what we understand is what Jesus is saying is there's an entire way of life made possible now because the kingdom of God has been made available in fresh and new and never-before-experienced ways because of Christ. The kingdom of God has been made available in fresh, new ways? What? Christ and the cross and ultimately the resurrection. Repent. It's not this threat. It's this opportunity. What if? What if we could see endings that way? You know, you, you think of God as unapproachable, but maybe he's not. Maybe he's actually just a really great leader. You know, you think those of you that have watched people coach your kids, or maybe you've coached yourself, I've observed over the years that, like, there's, there's good coaches and there's great coaches. And the difference between, and we could say this about doctors, we could, we could say this about bosses and managers and teachers, it's across the board. The difference between good and great is that, like, the good coaches, they know that to win the game, your son needs to hit the ball or he needs to block this guy. And that's what they tell him, hit the ball, block this guy. But great coaches... They define for them, they bring explanation to, in order to block this guy, here's what we're going to have to stop doing, and here's what we're going to have to start doing. It's not just a, a shout from the sideline. It's in there, next to him, in practice, going, okay, in order to block this guy, you need to stop spinning. You need to take two steps forward first. You need to come off the ball. You need to get your hands and your butt low. You need to get your hands underneath their shoulder pads. They're very, very clear on the beginnings and the endings. What if that, the God that you spent most of your life Considering terrorizing, what if that's really the way he rolls? Because he has some really strong ideas about what you'll need to end and what you'll need to begin. And for those of you that God seems a little bit distant and you're maybe what, maybe you'd even use the word a little bit lukewarm in your faith, maybe it's more your doing than his. Maybe you've departed from the God who comes next to you and goes, okay, do you want to stop, talk about what you need to stop doing too? I think of it this way. How many of you have desires and ambitions that are unfulfilled, hopes and dreams for your future? I'm going to assume that the rest of you like, don't eat milk toast, but you just don't want to raise your hand.
0: Mm, okay, so um, hopes and dreams that are not fulfilled. Are you going to be talking about dream killers
10: next? Um, and how many of you had a couple hours this week where you just sat around and went like, I don't have anything to do. I don't know what I'm going to do with my time. Like, how many of you have this sense of, like, there's these six hours a week, and there's just nothing to do during that six hours? It means you don't have kids in sports. That's what that means. So you see the tension? Like, all of us have these desires and ambitions, and all of us are already busy. Which means to get there is going to require carving out some space here. What if that's the way God would lead you? What if,
0: you know, if, if that's, what if that? Why don't you read a biblical text so we don't have to do all these what-if speculations of yours?
10: thing about endings, they almost always hurt. They always require a lot of courage. The other thing is that, that sometimes they're voluntary and sometimes they're involuntary. They really come in a couple different forms. Like sometimes a storm rolls in and you have no control over the storm showing up and you have no way of preventing the storm. And sometimes a storm rolls in and after it's gone, because they, they end... You walk out on your front step and you see a front yard littered with branches. Some of them are dead. You had no idea you had many dead branches in your tree. Some of them are alive. They're on top of your windshield. You had no idea that that would happen. Like sometimes like the hard decisions are made for us. They're, they're completely involuntary. So sometimes we get caught. Sometimes we get arrested. Some, sometimes the, the market shifts. Sometimes they break up with you. Sometimes those decisions are made for you. You get fired or they quit or something along those lines. And sometimes, sometimes it, it comes about only because you muster the courage and you hire the arborist and, or you climb the ladder yourself and you begin to acknowledge that your friends have been pointing this out to you for a while and you do the hard work of making the hard decisions your choice yourself. And here's the catch, though. If you were to ask me to summarize the most valuable part of everything I've learned as I've studied this for months— Everything I've observed in scripture, everything I've watched in myself, here's the one thing that you can't miss. The rest of it's all entertainment if you miss this. And that is that no matter whether it's voluntary or involuntary, in order, in order to step into the power and the wisdom and the life of endings, you have to begin to normalize endings. That's the word. Uh,
4: what? In order
10: to step into the
0: life of, of endings, you have to learn how to normalize endings?
10: What does that even mean? that the research uses. You have to begin to normalize endings. See, what that means is you have to move away from a posture that finds every potential ending as a threat and begin to first and foremost consider every ending an opportunity. That's not to say all endings are good things. Not for a second am I saying that. But it requires a posture that doesn't always find yourself threatened by them. You're not that quote-unquote stick-in-the-mud kind of person. You're not the one that panics as soon as something goes unexpected. You begin to recognize that some of the most creative and brilliant things come about because things happened outside of your control, there was an ending presented to you and you embraced it. You have to normalize them. Here's what Dr. Cloud says happens when we do in- Here's what Dr. Cloud says. What does Jesus
0: say? Because the thing about the pruning thing it's not the same as what you're saying.
10: And when we don't. He says if a situation falls in the range of normal expected and known, the human brain automatically marshals all available resources and moves to engage it. It sees it as an opportunity. But if the brain interprets the situation as negative, dangerous, wrong, or unknown, a fight-or-flight response kicks in that moves us away from the issue or begins to resist it. You follow that? Like To really step into the wisdom of this requires the courage to see every potential ending as a potential opportunity. And to begin to engage them that way. And here again, like, it's just I, just, I just love the text and the way God speaks to us. Because for a long time, God has been telling us this. There's this book called Ecclesiastes, which for whatever reason I've been gravitating to lately. It's not because I'm depressed, but it is kind of depressing and encouraging all at the same time. Listen to chapter 3, and some of you will be going like, wait a minute. I haven't heard that since college. I didn't know that was in the Bible. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. Any hippies need to get up and start dancing yet? A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You just start observing the way you talk. And I'll bet what you'll find is that you live with the assumption that there's a particular season of life that will make you happy. And any new season is a threat. Any new season is dangerous. Why is it so easy to fear death? Is it maybe because the God who we come to know draws near to us when our first child is born, who draws near to us uh, when we get our first job, who draws near to us whatever stage of life? Do we suddenly start believing that when we begin to experience like age and death, that that God will be distant? See, Solomon said, hey, there's a season for everything. What if... What if you could, there's a season for everything. What if, what if
0: he's telling us we need to normalize our endings? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't recall like Peter and Paul and the apostles, you know, going, and thus saith the Lord, you needeth to normalize thy endings. You know, They didn't preach like this. This was not the content of their message. Why aren't you preaching the apostolic message?
10: could live with a posture that when an ending came your way, one of the first questions you ask is, wait a minute, is there a new season starting that I need to begin to embrace? Talked a few weeks ago about how Teresa and I, we were just just in a funk in September. And I think if you have kids in school, you can relate to that because there's a sense of by like the middle of August, like I can't wait for them to go back to school. And then they do and you're like, what just happened? I forgot how busy this is. And so we were in that season and i got to tell you, though, uh, I wouldn't say that we've figured it all out yet, but when a couple weeks ago, when we made the observation that we're in a new season, like as parents, our, our kids aren't like little kids anymore. They're not preschoolers. They're upper elementary kids now. That Teresa's in a different spot in her job, narrates in a different spot. When we made the observation that we were in a new season of life, it's not that all of a sudden everything became crystal clear, but all of a sudden we were less panicked. There's a sense of like, oh, okay. So what we've been trying to do is apply old answers to old problems. But it's a different season. We're not 20-something anymore with kids in diapers. We're 30-something with kids in tackle football and all these kind of activities, and they're going a million different directions, and she's busier at work. It's a new season. And so we've got to figure out this new season. What, what if? What if you could begin to em- what if? What if? What if? What if? embrace endings in a way that didn't treat them as a threat Now, though this might come across as a little clinical, there's these three things that the research says are essential if you're going to normalize endings. And the first one is what we just talked about. If you ask the question, "How do we normalize endings?" well, first and foremost, they say that you have to accept life cycles and endings. You have to accept that you're not always going to be 20-something, you're not always going to be 30-something, you're not always going to be 40-something, you're not always going to be married without kids, you're not always going to be not married with lots of friends, you're not always going to be married with little kids. Like Life has seasons and cycles. And part of the wisdom of being a Christ follower is to draw near to God and to go, God, what does it look like to follow you in this season? And part of the value of relationships and mentors is to draw near to them and go, what was this like for you in this season? Because I'm, I'm in this new season that I think you were in 10 years ago. The other thing is, in addition to accepting that life, accepting life cycles and endings, is, is to simply acknowledge, and I love the way Dr. Cloud put this, accept that life produces... I love the way Dr. Cloud put
0: this. So we've put away the Bible in order to preach Dr. Cloud so that you can scratch itching ears and tell people what they want to hear, rather than doing the courageous and bold thing, opening up God's Word and telling them what they need to hear.
10: This is too much life. See, we have this this idea that good leaders, like it just naturally kind of hones itself. But what we realize is that the more successful and creative and motivated you are, the more opportunities you'll have. I'll never forget my friend Fred saying to me when I was 21 years old and new to following Jesus and I had all these opportunities. I'll never forget him saying to me, Adam, if I was Satan, you know what I would do to you? And I said, what? That's a weird question. He said, I would give you 20 good ideas and then I would just sit back and enjoy the fact that you're going to accomplish nothing. Sometimes it's just recognizing you've got too many opportunities. I have a friend who's one of the biggest stockbrokers in the state. Twenty years ago, he started going away for a weekend a year because he observed that that 80% of his problems were created by 20% of his clients. And 80% of his income was created by a different 20% of his clients. So once a year, he would go away for the weekend, he would determine who the high-maintenance 20% were, and he would fire them. He'd he'd take those guys and give them to the new poor sap that just graduated college and needed a portfolio to build. And 20 years later, he's one of the most respected and biggest uh, brokers in the state. Why? Because he recognized that by the nature of being successful, I'm also going to have to get a whole lot better of knowing what to say no to. Can I just challenge you here? Because I understand, and I have these conversations all the time. One of the first things that we cut is God. One of the first things that we cut is church. We come to this conclusion: like I can follow God without a community, which may or may not be true. We, We we cut serving. We cut scattering. We cut giving. And I know it sounds self-serving, but, but when you do that, you actually step right into the narrative of the text because what the text says, all the way back to Moses, he was talking to these Israelites who'd spent 40 years with nothing. They were about to move into the promised land. And you remember what Moses said to them? He said, okay, be careful. Because in just a little while, you're, you're going to drink wine from grapes that you didn't plant. You're going to drink water from wells that you didn't dig. And if you're not careful... You're going to come to the conclusion that all of your success and life and prosperity is the result of you, and you're going to forget all about God. One of the most common words in Moses' writing is the word remember. Remember. Remember where you came from. See, there's a cycle that happens if we fail to remember. So can I just challenge you? Don't don't cut your chair time. Those things that you've done for years that get you to where you're at, don't, don't cut them. Don't, don't cut making time for, for this. Don't cut making time to serve. Don't cut giving. Cut the other stuff. Cut, cut, cut the, all the new opportunities and privileges and advantages you have that you didn't have 10 years ago. And the third thing, if you want to normalize endings, is you have to recognize that disease and baggage exist. Next week, we're going to dig deep into what does it really mean to forgive and how do we differentiate forgiving from being abused and all those different kinds of questions. Sometimes an ending involves recognizing that 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 person's unhealthy and that relationship needs to end. Sometimes an ending involves admitting that you have a problem. Sometimes an ending is the stuff that I suppose you probably think of when you first hear the phrase necessary endings. It involves confessing your own propensity to wander and self-destruction. See, where I'm excited about this is this comes at us from every angle. Whether you know there's a disease, there's some baggage that needs to be dealt with, or whether you know that your success is suddenly getting the way of your life, or whether you just simply feel like you're five years into living the dream but you don't even know what the dream is anymore, endings apply to all of it. And my challenge to all of you this week is: What if? Maybe. You've- what if? My challenge is: What if? My challenge to you, Adam, is to open up
0: your Bible
10: you've never done this. Maybe you don't even believe in God. That's okay. What if you were to memorize John 15, two pretty simple verse. He, he...
0: You don't even believe in God, but just what if you memorize John 15, two, why don't you do what you're supposed to do, Adam? And Jesus in Luke 24, 47 says that repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations starting from Jerusalem. So why don't you preach repentance and Christ in him crucified for the forgiveness of sins to the people there at narrate church like you're supposed to
10: he cuts every branch every branch of me that bears no fruit and those that do produce fruit he prunes they'll produce even more fruit what if you were to memorize that this week and maybe turn the radio off on your way to work maybe stop looking at your iphone as you walk to work maybe, maybe, maybe you find five minutes maybe your chair time is just to meditate on that verse to pray that verse and to invite the living God of the universe to draw near to you and begin to give you some insight into where endings are a real need in your life.
0: So that the God of the universe can draw near to you to help you to figure out how to do good endings. What? You gonna tell them about like the end, you know, like when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead and sends people to hell? Are you gonna tell them about that?
10: You know, I was thinking this last week as I was running down Ascension about the nature of dirt. You ever thought about what makes dirt dirt?
5: No. Like
10: dirt is death. It's kinda dark right? Like what we have in the form of dirt is, is a bunch of organic things that used to be beautiful and used to have their place and used to be vibrant and used to be needed and used to be helpful. Like Sandy Patty. That's what we've got here, right? No, no offense to Sandy Patty, but like we have, we have ideas that used to be good ideas, but aren't good ideas anymore. Seasons that used to be the season, but it's not like what we have is death. And yet we also have latent energy, don't we? Like that That's the picture of necessary endings. Yeah, they're hard. Yeah, they hurt. But in dirt, you also have the potential for new life and new growth and new ideas and new creativity. So what if you were to just spend some time reflecting on... John fifteen two. If you don't have a Bible, swing by the scattering table. They'd love to give you one. What, what one if you
4: were? Version.
0: What if you were supposed to actually, you know, like read the Bible, preach the Bible, proclaim what the Bible says? You know, preach the word the way Scripture says. What if you were to do that, Adam?
4: Hey,
10: and just dare God to prove Himself real to you. Dare Him to be the Shepherd and the Leader and the King that He claims that He wants to be in your life.
0: Just dare God to do that. That is the end of that sermon. What a miserable excuse for a sermon. And the sad thing is, is I'm sure he has a lot of folks that are coming there to supposedly what they call kick the tires on Christianity. And did they hear anything even remotely useful, helpful, or true regarding what Scripture actually says? about who jesus is and what he's done for them no just kick the tires and on jesus and see if you know don't you dare him to uh, help him have him help you with figuring out good endings in your life and see if he doesn't show up in some kind of weird mysterious way that'll make you go wow maybe there is a god and maybe there is a jesus <sighs> unbelievable absolutely sad and tragic what do you think <coughs> Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your
1: sins. Amen.